I want to share with you, we're in a series called uh, Tough Questions, uh, and we've really been trying our best to um, unpack a couple of things and to, to just kind of lead you through some answers to some of the questions that we think uh, sometimes we ponder. Um, you know, uh, my wife will tell you that uh, I'm a person that uh, doesn't really vest a whole lot in stuff. Uh, you know, stuff isn't relevant to me anymore, and uh, I could probably live with just the minimal kinds of things. And, um, you know, uh, I, therefore, I have a tendency that if I haven't touched it or if we haven't touched it or opened it or dealt with it in about a month, then it's, it's got to go, you know. I mean, we kind of clean house that way. Now, she would argue that it would probably be daily I do that. Uh, but it's actually, you know, a little bit longer than that. Uh, you know, how many of you have ever had a move where you've moved and you had lots of boxes that you brought to your next house? Yeah. Um, how many of you have moved and found boxes like a couple years after the move that you've never opened? Yeah. See, that's the stuff I'm talking about. I mean, why do we need that stuff? We don't need that stuff at all. And, and we, we found that out after a couple of moves ago, it, a couple of years into it, and there in the back of the closet was this box that was still taped, and it wasn't readily identified. I'm saying this to protect myself. And uh, therefore, I did what I do. I tossed it. I mean, how did I know our wedding album was in it? I mean, come on. I mean, seriously. But hey, listen, listen, you know, I, you know it, I, I went out very quickly when I was told what was in it, and I didn't know. And uh, retrieved it, so everything's fine. Uh, we did have a very spirited conversation that day. Uh, and uh, I uh, grew in great humility uh, even more. But, you know, so, so thinking about that, um, what, if it, what is it that's relevant to you? So obviously there's some things in our lives that, that are relevant to us. Um, I was thinking about that. I actually had a laundry list of things I was going to bring today. Like I have one of those grand poobah hats that Fred Flintstone wore in the Flintstones and, you know, a couple pictures and things like that. But I, I kind of, um, I'm always being told by uh, the worship team, Bob, you talk too long, cut it short. So I'm only going to share one thing. And um, so basically this right here. Now, uh, you all at this uh, time of worship, you may not be aware of what this is. This is what's called a stole. Uh, a stole is a sign of ordination, uh, in, especially in the United Methodist Church. And, and really, uh, what it represents is it means that the person who has been ordained and receives a stole, uh, in this case, uh, was me. Uh, this was the stole I received when I was ordained as an elder in the United Methodist Church to uh, proclaim the gospel, to serve the sacraments, uh, and to uphold the uh, life of the church. And um, so this, this is a reminder for me. So this is a yoke of obedience that uh, in our nine o'clock worship, I wear, Pastor Pam and I, we wear robes and uh, albs and stuff. And it's a sign of a uh, yoke of obedience to Christ. In fact, Pastor Pam's gonna be getting her stole uh, in just a couple of weeks in Lakeland when she becomes ordained as a deacon uh, in the United Methodist Church. So that's coming up soon, yeah, all right, yeah. <laughs> that's all right. So, so the question is, what, what do you find that's relevant? I mean, that's, that's something that's relevant for me. It's relevant in my identity. It's relevant in, in my call, my passion, and, and in what I do. So um, as I talk with people, I, I kind of understand that, that some of us have an overarching question that's in our life. And that overarching question can range anywhere from the words of, what is my life's purpose, to why am I here, to what is relevant about the life that I'm living now? And uh, my guess is that most of us have probably asked that question um, at some point in time of our life. Maybe you're kind of in the middle of asking it now. 
Uh, but that's a healthy question to ask as we're, as we're searching for that relevance. What's the true meaning of life? So today we want to talk about that. We want to talk about what is relevant, but specifically a topic of relevance. So week one, let's just recap. Week one, uh, in Tough Questions, we talked about, you know, why would God allow bad things to happen to me? And we dealt with the theological and biblical reasons of what happens and who's in control and power of, of the things that happen in our daily life. The second week, uh, I talk, talked on a topic that um, whether you're a believer or whether you are someone outside of the church, it comes up all the time, and that is, why are Christians hypocrites? And we talked about the significance of hypocrisy, about how sometimes we find ourselves saying that we live one way, but really we live a different way. And we're calling the world into live a certain way, but yet we ourselves aren't willing to do that. So we dealt with hypocrisy and we worked through that. Pastor Pam last week, um, she did a brilliant job as she brought in all these different translations of Bibles and great picture for us as we looked at you know, the significance of, is the Bible the only truth? And so we talked about that and, and dealt with that. So today, I want us to tackle a, a subject which, which is uh, very focused, and that is, is Christianity still relevant? Is Christianity still relevant? Now, I'm hoping that, that when we finish today, that we, we come to a point where we understand um, the importance of that. So, so these are tough questions. These aren't like questions that some of us ask in churches like, hey, we're going to have a church picnic. Who's going to bring the congealed salad that's green that we all like and all that stuff? We're really trying to delve into what are the overarching questions that we have as people of faith and how does that inform us? Um, I was having coffee with a friend not long ago, and uh, we were having a pretty uh, innocuous conversation and, and just kind of catching up on some stuff. And then out of the wild blue, she, she says to me, she says, I'm not really sure, Bob, that one person can take and, and basically pay for the sins of the whole world. And I kind of just went like, whoa, where'd this come from? And, uh, and then she said, you know, because I really believe that every person is responsible for their own sin. And no one else is responsible for your sin, Bob. No one else is responsible for mine, that we're all responsible for that ourselves. And uh, I got to thinking about that, and there's a part of her, her statement that is true, that I am responsible for my life. You are responsible for your life. Um, but, but what she wasn't connecting the dot on is, is that there is an individual uh, who does connect the dots when it comes to covering us and taking away the sins of not only you, not only me, but, but all of us in the entire world. Now, how did that happen? So we kind of got to reverse history a little bit here. We got to go back in time where, where down in the first century, uh, there, was, there was a lot of stuff that was happening. The, the Roman Empire was in power. There was lots of pagan worships uh, happening and idol worshiping and all those kinds of things. And all of a sudden, this guy shows up and his name is Jesus. And, and Jesus starts proclaiming something about a kingdom of God. And, and he begins to call upon believe, Jewish believers and, and as, as well as non-believers, pagans. Or, and he begins to say that you need to repent of sin. And, and more importantly, you need to follow me. And, 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 and you need to see that life in God is also life in me. And that God and I are one. So Jesus began this movement, and the people that followed Jesus in the early first century, they were, they were not called Christians at that time. They were actually called followers of the way. And it wasn't until uh, later in the first century uh, in the church of Antioch where they first became and adopted the term Christian. So they were followers of the way. They were following Jesus. And, and something was happening. Something was magnetic. Something was... Um, 
uh, powerful in this testimony that Jesus had. And people were attracted to Jesus and the movement began to build. And, and all of a sudden, the power of God began to see itself emulate uh, throughout and resonate all throughout the world. And the question is, how is it that a small cult that happened in the Middle East in a little town outside of the mighty power and grasp of the Roman Empire, how could that little movement of religion, how could that become so relevant that it's still alive today, thousands of years later? Now, what was it about the early Christians, the early followers of the way, the people of Jesus, what was it about them that made them excited about their faith? What is it that made them say that I love God and I love neighbor and, and all the things that, that Jesus taught us that we are to do and the, the ways in which we're to live? What was it that made their faith, let's just use a word, irresistible? And why is it that we struggle with that today? Why is it that the Christian church today um, has great difficulty with that message. And I'm hoping that we can get to that. And that's really kind of where that, that whole part is, is, is Christianity relevant? I mean, look at the news. Every day, we look at stuff that's happening in the news, right? And, and we begin to wonder, where is the influence of Christians in the world? Where is the influence of Christians in our local community? Where is the influence of Christians um, in dealing with some of the great challenges that we have in humanity today? Where are we? When are we gonna show up for all of these things? And people are asking the question, well, are you, are you relevant? Do you have a voice at the table? Do you even matter anymore? And that's the heart of where we want to be. See, sometimes we, we, we kind of look at our faith as more about what we do than what we are to become. So we, we picture ourselves as Susie and Johnny and we think about all the good things that we want to do in life and all the, the rules that we adhere to and things that we hold on to and those kind of things. And as long as we can do all of that, then we must be really close to God. But you know, when Jesus came into the world, Jesus kind of shook all that up, didn't he? And Jesus pointed out that, that all the stuff that we had up in our heads that said what the relationship with God was all about and the way to which to live with God was all about, everything we thought about here wasn't right. And Jesus proclaimed a very scandalous word, a very scandalous statement. He said, I am God, and I am the way, the truth, and the life of all things. I had a seminary professor, Dr. Eford, and he had two great statements. And he used to say, you know, Bob, whenever you're sharing the gospel, whenever you're sharing the story of God, whenever you're helping to lead people into the faith story, if they want to argue with you about it, he said, you know what, don't, don't, don't become impatient, don't become flustered. He said, don't let them argue with you. Let them argue with the gospel. So, so let's look and see what the gospels have to say. And when I say gospel, I mean the good news. And then he would also say, he said, when it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to believing in Jesus, when it comes to really being a lover of Jesus, at the end of the day, it boils down to this. We all pays our money and we makes our choice. And he says, you know, that's basically where we stand with this. Now, well, people will tell you that it doesn't matter uh, what religious brand that you buy into because at the end of the day, they'll say they all lead to God. And I think there's a, I think there's a challenge that comes with that. Um, all roads may not lead to God. I mean, do they? Do, do, is that what we believe? That no matter what we believe, it all just goes back to God anyway. Perhaps uh, this is what's behind the, the, the lagging sense of understanding of the Christian faith is we've allowed ourselves to become pluralistic in a sense that it's kind of like, well, it doesn't matter what we believe anymore. We're just like everybody else. But is that really what Jesus meant? 
Is that what really what Jesus was teaching? Is that really what Jesus was about when he went to the well and met the Samaritan woman? Is that really what Jesus meant when he broke the barriers and went out into the highlands and and began to heal the lepers? Is that what Jesus meant when he uh, rescued the woman who was about to be stoned, caught in adultery, and challenged everyone else who was bringing charges against her? Is that really what he meant for us just to be pluralistic and, and the faith that we confess not mean anything? I think he meant more than that. You know, so, so Jesus says, I am God. I am the way. And, and the challenge becomes with the non-Christian or the non-believing, the unbelieving community, they see that as a sense of an exclusive statement that we hold on to as Christians. And sometimes, depending upon how we deliver that statement, the ways in which we share, kind of like what Pastor Pam was talking to us about last week, if we go up and whack somebody over the head with our big King James, and we tell them that they have to believe what we believe, we probably have no shot at having a conversation to enter into a loving and graceful motion to bring someone into the fold of God. But yet, if we come alongside and we demonstrate the love and the compassion and the peace of Jesus Christ, we just might be able to do that. But Jesus' claim to being the only way to God puts Christianity in a class by itself. Proclaiming that he was the only route to God, Jesus is alleging that Christianity is unique. And not only unique, but it's indeed different than all other world religions of the things that we see. And that everything else in all other world religions, that Christianity is different in a great capacity. Here's a couple of things I want to look at. Other religions, they'll, they'll tell you, follow me, and I'll, and I'll show you how to find truth. Other, other leaders, I should say, will say, follow me, and I'll show you how to find truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Other religious leaders will tell you, follow me, and I'll show you the way of salvation. Jesus says, I am the way of eternal life. Other religious leaders will tell you, follow me, and I'll show you how to become enlightened. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Other religious leaders will tell you, follow me and I'll show you the doors that lead to God. And Jesus says, I am the door. So do you see the difference of things that are happening here? You know, in a, in a, in a world of, of discipleship, in our world of discipleship, um, the one who's wanting to get closer to God, of all the world religions teach something, and that, that is that we are to do something, that the pilgrim that the person who's wanting to be in faith has to do something. And we see that they have to struggle, they have to strive, they have to painfully see their way through this process of what's called discipleship, of following to to be in the presence of God. World religions, they have to go through pilgrimages, give alms to the poor, maintain strict dietary laws. They have to perform good deeds. They have to chant the right words that they have to pray so many times during the day. They have to go through a series of reincarnations. And, and they have to follow some prescripted drill. Every world religion except one, Christianity. In fact, Christianity is not, a, is not a religion of do. You and I as pilgrims, you and I as disciples, we don't have to do anything. Christianity is built upon D-O-N-E, done. And we see that, that that's what Christ has done for us on the cross. Scripture teaches us that, that we're spiritual rebels, that, that we are naturally um, corrupt in a way that we want to strive to win the world on our own, that we want to influence the world on our own, but we want to do it on our own agendas. That that's how we're wired as people. And yet what the scriptures tell us is, is that Jesus, God in Jesus, God in the flesh, incarnation, God has come to rescue us from that. Other religious leaders 
can, can offer helpful insights and recommendations, but only Jesus, because he's indeed the Son of God, is qualified to offer himself as the way of salvation. Jesus is the one who says, I am the way. You see, no other leader of any major religious connection or religious sect um, can do what Jesus did. Well, I mean, Moses, Moses could, could mediate on the law. Muhammad could brandish a sword. Buddhist, Buddha could say that, let me give you some words of enlightenment, some wisdom. Um, uh, Confucius could offer wise sayings, but none of that qualified the one thing that Jesus said he could do, and that's to lead us to salvation and to give us a life in God through him. So we see that the relevance of our faith, the relevance of Christianity is true, especially as we take a look at it as it beams against all the other things that happen in the world. Christianity continues to remain the light of the world. In Ephesians chapter two, the apostle Paul is a man who saw his own transformation in life. Paul was a Pharisee. He was one that lived by the laws. He was one that abided by all the, the things to do, so to speak, in the religion in which he was living. And it wasn't until Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus in this powerful image. And Jesus asked Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you killing followers of me? What is it about me, Paul, that you find so offensive? And we know through that experience, Paul's life was transformed. It was changed. And he, at one moment, was the greatest enemy of Christianity. And in a flash, so to speak, became its greatest asset, its greatest promoter, its greatest planter of churches, its greatest follower of Jesus Christ. So Paul writes some profound words here. And we have to take the words because of his own experience with great credibility in our own lives. And he writes in Ephesians chapter 2, and he's trying to help us to understand the importance of what it means to live a faith, to have relevance in the faith in which we confess. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, he begins by telling us that, that there is a difference between us and God. That God is great, God is all powerful, God is all gracious, God is all love, and we're somewhere down here. Maybe if we've even met the scale. But yet Paul warns us and says, but we have to be careful because you and I are constantly striving to make ourselves look better than we really are. We're putting posts out on, on Facebook or social media telling everybody we're living a life that we really aren't, just to use an example. We're trying to let the world think that we're something that we aren't. And Paul says, we've got to remember that we're really not a whole lot of anything, but yet we want to raise ourselves up. We want the world to think how successful we are. We close a big deal at work. We break out the scotch and the cigars, and we begin to toast everybody and say, look what I did, how great I am. Our kids score high on SATs, legitimately, and get into, uh, get into uh, college and, and we want to kick back and say, look what I did because I'm their parent. I, my child's great because of me. Or our company that we work for has a great quarter. And maybe we had a small part, but, but we, we blow it out of proportion. That company would tank if it wasn't for me. I'm the reason why they're successful. And Paul reminds us that we've got to get this right. And Paul says that it's not about us. At the minute we begin to think that the Christian story is about us, we've lost the relevance. It's no longer important. It no longer has a voice. Paul says it's all about God. And Paul wants to keep us enlightened to that. You see, he says that really, the only thing that you and I bring to the table is the sin that necessitated the need of our salvation. 
So let's look at what Paul writes in, in Ephesians 2. He says, it wasn't so long ago that you were mired in the old stagnant life of sin. You let the world which doesn't um, know the first thing about living tell you how to live. So the world is telling us how to live. We're abiding into the world and we're letting the world uh, coax us and manipulate us and, and, and move us in line. He says, you filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then you exhaled disobedience. And what's the next verse? He says, we all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing, when we felt like doing it, all of us in the same boat. So Paul is saying that it's not just a few people or someone else. He says, it's, we're all doing this. So we all are in need of something from God, he's saying to us. He's saying that we all need uh, to, to live in God. We're, the, we're walking dead, so to speak. We're, without Christ, we are spiritually dead. We're like zombies walking around the world. And he says that we need Christ in our life to give us life. He continues to write, instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, God embraced us. I mean, let me read that again. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, God embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all of this on his own, not, not with me, not with you, not by things that we did. God chose to do this and God does it on his own. He did it with no help from us. And then he picked us up and he set us down into have the highest heaven company with Jesus, our Messiah. You see, this is about the incredible love of God. And Paul spends a lot of time talking about the incredible love of God. And that incredible love of God is called grace. What is grace? Grace is undeserved, unmerited, unpurchasable, if that's a word, the love of God. We can't earn it, we can't buy it, we can't do, just, it just comes from God. We don't even deserve it, but God gives it to us. So Paul is saying here that God chooses to bring us out of the muck and the mire of the life in which we have been born into. And God chooses us to love us. And some of us in the room, we need to hear these words this morning. Some of us in the room, maybe we weren't lucky enough to have parents who loved us. Maybe we weren't lucky enough to have a household in which we were raised where, where people encouraged us and put into us. Maybe we weren't in a, in, a, in a place where it wasn't so hostile, but it was hostile. Some of us need to hear these words, that we have a heavenly father. You have a heavenly father. And, and it's not your earthly father. It's not, it's not the father that might have harmed you. It's not a father that, that, that didn't meet up to your expectations. It's not a father who tried his best to be the best dad possible, but because he's imperfect, he made mistakes. You have a heavenly father who is perfect in every way, who will never disappoint you. A heavenly father who loves you. A heavenly father who showers you with his love every day. Paul continues to write, God has us where he wants us with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. And saving is all his idea and all his works. And all we have to do is trust him and let it go. Paul is reminding you, he's reminding me, all those times that we try to earn God's love, all those times that we do works to try to justify how good we are in the sight of God, about how close we want to get to God. Look, God, what I'm doing. Look what I did today. God, just love me. Look at this. Paul is saying none of that matters, that it's a gift from God from start to finish. We don't play the major role, he writes. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing ourselves. No, we neither make nor save ourselves, Paul writes. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work that he has done, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do 
work he had bet work that he had better be doing. Work that we had better be doing. So you see, it's it's not about what we do. The relevance of your faith, the relevance of the faith I confess, it's all about God. So it's not how often we pledge allegiance to the Awana flag. It's not how often that we, you know, read the Bible. It's not how often we come to church. It's not how often we can recite the books of the Bible in order, frontwards and backwards. It's not uh, how good we are at reciting every chapter, verse, and word of the book of Habakkuk. It doesn't matter. But God chooses to shower us with his love. You see, this element comes to a head uh, when an ancient scholar began to look at the differences between Buddhism and Christianity. And he said, let me take a story a story of a prodigal son. There's one in Buddhist literature, and obviously we have prodigal son in in Luke chapter 15 of of our holy scriptures. And in both of those instances, both sons decided that they wanted to leave their home. Both sons decided that they could have a better life without their parents, without without their loved ones. Both sons realized and thought, I've got a better life out there. But then while they were out there, they realized, holy moly, life's tough. And they lost everything, and they decided to return back to their family home. But in the story of the Buddhist story, what we learn is the errant son is required to work off the penalty for his past misdeeds by spending years in servitude. So yeah, his father let him come back, but his father said, you're going to serve me for several years as my servant. And in the prodigal son story that we see in the scriptures of the Christian Bible, it concludes with the prodigal son receiving a warm welcome from his father, unconditional forgiveness, grace that is bestowed, and love that is showered upon him. You see, that's the importance and the relevance of our faith. It's the fact that God loves us, and God's love is real. The world cannot teach love, but God does. So when we think about Jesus as he proclaims the words in John chapter 13, love others as I have loved you, that because of the way you love others, they will know that you are my follower, my disciple, love others in all that you do. What makes our Christian faith relevant is we demonstrate that kind of love. So we have a faith that is relevant today. It's a faith that is living and breathing is a faith that will captivate the world and will continue to share the story of the love of the God who created all people. Is our faith still relevant today? You bet it is. Why? Because of Jesus Christ.